Welcome to Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex healthcare issues is our job. And good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're listening. This is uh, another edition of Health Law Talk here at Shahardi Sherman Williams. Conrad Meyer, Rory Bellina, healthcare attorneys, bringing you the latest and greatest in healthcare law, policy, social issues, right? That right, That's right. Good description. And today we have a guest in the studio, the wonderful Dr. Aries Christakis. Dr. Christakis, how are you? Good. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Today. Yeah, thanks for coming. We really appreciate that. Now, I, I knew you You listened to the show. You told me you listened to the show, and we're very appreciative of that. So now that you're in the studio, like you're sitting here, you know, what do you think? I mean, I'm putting you, you know. I, I think it's a very nice setup. I think it's, uh, it kind of all makes sense because your audio sounds really good on the podcast. We appreciate that. And you have a real professional and legitimate setup here. Well, we, we, we tried. Thank you. Yeah. We tried. Now, a labor of love, but we've got it set up. Rory did all the building. I mean, he was the one that put all the stuff up. It, it took, a, took a little bit of time, but we've got it now, and it, we're, we're happy with the results. So. I, think, I think the result's good. I think good. I mean, look, we thank you for coming in. So, so general surgeon, what do you, what, tell me about you. You're, you're, I know, we know you're a physician. I know you're a surgeon. I don't know much. I, I'd like to know more about you. So how, how did this start for you? How did your journey start, med school, you know, and, and, and to, to where you are now? How did it all begin? So... Uh, I wouldn't say it was by design, but um, sort of a New Orleans person. I've uh, done high school, college, med school, residency, and now work all within a few miles radius. All here, uh, like in Louisiana? In, Louisiana? in New Orleans. Wow. <clears throat> oh, wow. Um, which is, you know, a little bit unusual with a brief hiatus where I uh, was in Alexandria after residency doing some trauma surgery. Um, but, you know, medical school is one of those things. You're in college, uh, like the sciences, mm-hmm. feel like uh, you like interacting with people, hearing people's stories, working with people, and, of course, helping them. And medical school becomes sort of a natural attraction. You know, then I, I have a memory in medical school uh, enjoying the emergency room, which is what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and then I saw people getting wheeled out of the emergency room to go to the operating room. And I felt like that's where the real fun was. Like, where are they going? <laughs> They're going you know, somewhere and, else. And there's really some fantastic things that happen in, in operating rooms, whether by general surgeons or mm-hmm. other surgeons. Um, and sometimes the collaborations that work over there are really, the, the, the collaborations at work are really fantastic. Um, well, how does that work? I mean, let me, let me ask you that. So, so, you know, I mean, we always hear cardiac surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons. Um, how does where does how does general surgery fit into the I guess the layers of specialties? How does that work in the surgery area? So uh, traditionally, they were just surgeons. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day, that was sort of where they started, and it was just a surgeon, and they did everything. And they slowly started to subspecialize. You know, and you've reached a point where uh, there are 
for residency training, there's multiple different training tracks. Uh, there are a fair number of them that start with general surgery, and then they will complete the rest of their training elsewhere. You know, maybe they'll just do one year of general surgery. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll do two or three years, and they'll complete their training in in whatever subspecialty they decide. Yes, uh, oftentimes they have to complete an entire surgery residency to go and do that. But that's one of those things that's tra- that's changing. Um, is it for, a four-year, six-year? What, what's the common for, for general? General surgery is five years. Five, okay. Um, and, you know, just to use, say, vascular surgery as an example, mm-hmm. um, there are many programs that are three years uh, after a five-year general surgery residency, but there are also z- what they call zero-five programs, which are vascular surgery from the beginning, and they don't do a full general surgery residency before going on to do vascular. So on match day... You, you, you can literally match in a three or a, a vascular surgery residency from the beginning. Yes. Wow. Okay, I did not know that. That's that's relatively new. And if I have, you know, I this is all uh, current as of the last time I was a resident and had these conversations. So gotcha. if, if it's no longer zero five, but I believe that's what it is. So you can go. So, so some programs like meaning another professional boards like vascular or cardiac or whatever. So you can go to a general surgery residency for, for X number of years and then sort of apply. Is it, is it considered a, a residency or is that considered a fellowship? A fellowship. So it's a fellowship. Yes. And it's dictated the years by whatever that professional board is, right? Or is there some other way, some other governing body that says, hey, this is what you do for this? Yes, there are some. So there are some. Uh, so trauma surgery, for example, has a one-year fellowship, which in some locations is a two-year fellowship. And so there is some variability amongst the, the fellowships, uh, but there are a lot that have a, a minimum requirement. Interesting. Interesting. So so you, you went straight in a general surgery, five-year residency, and then... What happened now? You, you just go straight to practicing? So I had uh, spent five years doing my residency here at LSU in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, after residency, there was a plan uh, for me to stay with one of the, the local universities uh, as staff. Okay. Um, and for various budget reasons, they weren't able to make that happen in the end to make their vision happen. Okay. Um, and so I ended up at that point going to Alexandria, Louisiana to do trauma surgery. Trauma surgery is one of those things that doesn't necessarily require a fellowship if you've had the experience and know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, worked three years up there at Rapides Regional Medical Center, which is you know, a very good level two trauma center. Um, really a fantastic place, gives people great care. Um, and we did a lot of good things up there. Now, were you with a group up there, or you worked for the hospital itself? Uh, we were hospital employed. Gotcha. Okay. And um, and I was there for three years and came down here, uh, and I'm currently hospital employed over at Turo, uh, where I'm a part of their general surgery program. Gotcha. So that, that so you straight from Rapides back home and at Turo and had been at Turo ever since? Yes. And so here, you know, of course, not doing trauma surgery at Turo, doing more general surgery and acute care surgery. Very interesting. Very interesting. So what, let me ask you this. What's it, I mean, it's gotta be, it's a lot of pressure to be a surgeon, I would think. I mean, you're talking, you know, I mean, to do surgery on someone, patient comes in. I mean, that's, I mean, I know lawyers have pressure, but I don't think lawyers have pressure, Rory, the way surgeons would have pressure, you know? No, I think 
and like Conrad mentioned, I'm sure that the pressure that you have is life or death. Ours is not. And then obviously you've got to, we, a, we, we lose a case or sure. we don't do a deal. Right. Sure. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a time component and it's, it's doing it proper. You know, if Conrad or I mess up on amending bylaws, we could reamend them, you know, right. but if you mess up on a surgery, there's a lot more uh, significant repercussions for the patient. So I guess if you could talk about, you said that, you know, you, you thought you wanted to do ER work, but then seeing the patients leave the ER and come in and, uh, or go off to surgery, led you to surgery. It, was that what kind of drove you to go that path is like the excitement of getting in there and fixing it as opposed to just kind of treating and, and, and referring out or, or was it something else? I think there was, for me, a part of the attraction was being able to see through the entire issue um, from start to finish. And, you know, that was something um, that, you know, the emergency room does a lot of fantastic things and they, they know enough about uh, everything to sort of manage all of the acute things. But I think not being able to be there for the definitive management and see how it turns out uh, was not something that I was crazy about. And I, I think they do fantastic work and they're a huge asset to us. Uh, but spending time in the operating room, fixing the problem, seeing it through uh, is something that I found attractive. And surgery is somewhat unique because you more often have an opportunity to definitively fix a problem. Obviously, it's not always that way, um, but it's not, for example, like blood pressure where you will treat someone's blood pressure and you will probably treat that for their entire life and you will sort of mm -hmm. manage it. Um, you know, there's more opportunity to definitively, you know, excise a tumor or, or you know, remove an inflamed appendix. Or, right you know, definitively fix something. And a lot of our patients are not our lifelong patients for that reason. That's it. I mean, so, so when you get in, you can actually see. Now, let me ask you, that's a good question. So when you ever gotten into a surgery before and, you, and you're like, oh, I know what I'm going after. And then you went in and you're like, wait a minute, I found something else. I need to fix that. Is that, and, and, and then, and then like, like, you're like, it's like an aha moment, you know, or you thought one thing and you got in, oh, well, this is really the issue. Has that ever happened before? It's pretty unusual. I think that uh, with imaging these days and our aversion to surprises in the operating room. Yeah, that would not be good. When I have a, a case scheduled, you know, for example, tomorrow I have five cases scheduled tomorrow. And oh, wow. I can sit down and sort of run through every case in my head and I can visualize the entire case. And that's sort of the tendency. And you have all of the imaging and you really leave no stone unturned before you go to the operating room. So you've already done it. Like, in other words, you, in your mind, you have gone from, you know, prep to close in your mind of that case before. Wow. Yes. And I, you know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if everybody does it that way, but in my mind. That's how you do it. That's, yes. And that's right. And that's a, that's very methodical because you have to be perfect the whole time. I mean, it's hard. And that's what I was saying with Rory. I mean, we can't, I mean, we can mess up and we can, we can kind of fix it, right? We can, we can do things, change things, amend things. I mean, and, and I tell this to students because I mean, I teach the law students and I try telling them the mentality of, of physicians. I mean, you have to be perfect a hundred percent of the time. That's, that's a hard, that's kind of a high bar, yeah. you know, Rory. I mean, that's yeah. a high bar. Yeah. I had a question for you because Connor and I were talking before the show about 
a future episode we're going to do with um, reps, device reps, or whoever it may be. I want to get your perspective on how you've seen, like in your years of surgery, how you've seen reps evolve. Um, you know, do you have a lot of experience with them? Or are they in surgery with you, just sitting there guiding, assisting, and kind of what's your overall opinion of them? Because there's been a lot of controversy regarding reps, reps in the in the in the surgery room, obviously how they're paid and how they can and can't be paid. And then um, you know, just overall what what your relationship is with reps in the in the OR suite. So uh, reps work pretty closely with us mm-hmm. pretty often. I think that in my practice I don't see a lot of reps on a daily basis. Uh, they will occasionally uh, poke their head into a case of mine and check that everything's okay and I don't have any issues. You know, for example, there's there's a rep who who provides one of the mesh products uh, that right. I like, and I've been using that same mesh product since sometime in the middle of residency, and he is the same rep that's been coming around. And so there's not necessarily anything new to show me with those products. Every now and then there's a new product that comes out and they have something to show you. Um but they'll poke their head in and make sure that everything's situated. Um, I do think that in some of the subspecialties where they're using, you know, sometimes they might be using some fancier equipment, mm-hmm. um, there is close collaboration uh, that I think is important. Um, you know, I think the big thing that I had spent some time with reps was uh, with the Da Vinci robotic system. When... When I uh, first started doing robotics, I've lost count, but it was probably a few years ago now. Um, they have a whole onboarding process to make sure that everybody's getting the appropriate skills and that sort of thing. Do we, Da Vinci does that? Yes. Yes, they have a program. Um, I was going to talk for, about that, by the way. I was going to get, but you already you got, you got to it before I did. So, so I'd like to hear a little bit about what's that process like and the, and the onboarding. So... In for general surgery, Da Vinci has uh, a, a huge piece of the market share. I know that other robots exist, but just to give you an idea, I've never seen them. Um, I've read about them. I've, I know of at least one in town that they've sort of experimented with, but they really have the vast majority of the market share for general surgery. And so what they will do is you know, this is all for procedures that you already are familiar with. Right. And you're already presumably doing them open. Um, a lot of them, you've been doing them laparoscopically for a long time. So you've been doing them minimally invasive already. And sort of the robotics is adding a different instrument, at least in this case for the general surgeons. And so they have a program where they will take you to Uh, one of their facilities. I know there's one in Atlanta, maybe there's one in Houston, and they will take you there for sort of an intensive course. They will have a cadaver lab or a lab that uses, um, that will use pigs as uh, the subject and sort of teaching skills. And once that is done, uh, they will assist in getting you a, a proctor at the facility uh, that you work at. So somebody will come to your facility and sort of make sure that you don't have any questions uh, as you're getting acclimated with the robot. Uh-huh. I have a basic question yeah. about robotics. So if I'm a 
if I come see you at Toro or if I'm referred to you for a surgery and you say, Rory, I want to do X surgery, um, does the patient have any choice in whether it's going to be done through robotic or not? And what are kind of the are, are there any advantages, disadvantages? And then obviously from a reimbursement standpoint, if you could talk about that on kind of the differences between, I guess, doing it the old school way versus, versus robotic. So so uh, taking reimbursement first, uh, the open procedures get reimbursed different than the laparoscopic procedures. So laparoscopic being the minimally invasive. And the robotic procedures, I think that the term they often prefer, if you're looking for a more precise, precise term, is robot-assisted laparoscopic surgery. Ah, uh, okay. okay. And so uh, for those procedures, at least in general surgery, they almost universally uh, reimburse the same as the laparoscopic. So once okay. you're minimally invasive, those reimburse the same. Okay. Um, well, there has to be a huge cost to getting these robots to the hospital. So can you talk about some of the benefits or, or some of the, the, the reasons why you choose not to do one for a patient? So in my practice, I think that there are certain procedures that have significant advantages in doing them robotically. Uh, for me, I think there, there are advantages for hernias, for colon surgery. Um, those are the two big ones, and there are a lot of different permutations of that. I get a little less excited about it for gallbladder surgery. Um, I think that there are a lot of people out there that will do them robotically, and um, I think that that's a re very reasonable way to do it, and there are some advantages. Uh, but for me, the cost-benefit's not entirely there in my hands. And so for that reason, I don't necessarily recommend it for that. Um, I do think... You know, patients do get some choice. Uh, if a patient um, comes to me, for example, and they want an inguinal hernia repair, uh, I can talk to them about doing it open, doing it laparoscopically, or doing it robotically. Usually when we have that conversation, I think that the benefits for uh, a robotic-assisted inguinal hernia repair are, are stark enough that they will usually choose that. Okay. I, you know, it's interesting because I think just people, not like like, like Dr. Christakis here or, or just like even you and I, Rory, because we do this a lot every day, but the general public, you know, here's robotics. And they're like, I want to get that, you know. So if you just literally put the word robotic, right, or robotic surgery, you know, they're going to come and say, well, if I have the surgery, I want the robot. Because they think in their mind, it's like, oh, it's better. And I will say that this is not something that's limited to lay people. I, I, you know, I've had a, I had a physician that came and saw me in clinic last week. Mm -hmm. He had an umbilical hernia that needs repairing. Uh, it's not very big. It's of a size that doesn't require mesh. And really doing it robotically, on the whole, will give him, you know, in aggregate, longer incision, um, potentially a little bit more pain and really no benefit. There's no benefit. And that's that's a case where even a physician will come in and say, you know, I, 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 I'd like this to get done robotically. And you sort of, it's our job to sort of educate the patient to where they uh, are thinking about the same things we're thinking about. They're worried about the same things we're worried about and looking at the same benefits that we're looking at. And, you know, they usually will follow the recommendation. But, I mean, do you, do you have patients that come in and say, you know what, I... I heard you did robots. 
and I really want you to do the robots because I want to get robotic surgery because that's the best. I mean, do y'all do you have patients that do that and say, oh, "I gotta have the robot"? We we do, and to be honest with you, most of the time they're right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> at least they're right. That's I good. Mean, I think that for I'm just gonna a surgeon. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna put the sign robotic, and then people are gonna want to come see me. I think that might work. Yeah. For you know for. One example is that any time I'm placing mesh, I prefer to place it robotically. I think that um, mesh has sort of been a hot topic in the legal world. Um, and so, you know, enough to where, the, you know, they have these advertisements on TV, and so it's in patients' minds. Uh, and, you know, they have concerns about it. And really, whenever we're doing a hernia, there's two things that we're looking for. One is to make sure that it doesn't recur, and two, to make sure that we don't get an infection. Um, and I think that there was a very big jump in decreasing infection rates when we went from open surgery to laparoscopic. And I think that there's some further imp improvement going from laparoscopic to robotic, um, you know, in addition to some of the other benefits of the actual repair and being a better right. repair. So to be honest with you, most of the time, Patients have that right. I, I do think that there are distinct advantages. You mentioned pain, and we have an episode scheduled with a pain physician, so I won't go too too deep into this. But I'd love to get your history on how your practice has changed for um, pain management post surgery, because that's you mentioned mesh, and now we're talking pain. Um, if you could just talk about it, what you learned in med school and residency regarding pain and pain management and the you know, opioids, and then just pr in practicality, issues you've run into, you know, issues with patients, and then kind of how you handle it now, because it's a very controversial topic. And, and I know the CDC is, uh, or FDA recently, as, as recent as this week, I think, has revised some guidance on how pain management should be done post-surgery. So um, uh, this is a very interesting topic. I mean, we're wading in some waters here, but I, I understand where you're going with this. It's, 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 a, it's like a mosaic picture. So what I'll, it's fluid. <laughs> so I'm, you're kind of forcing me to use the tired metaphor of the pendulum. Sure. Yes. Uh, so when I was a resident, I have a distinct memory. You know, so we were a, a trauma center, and I have a distinct memory of um, there was a nurse that would come around that was involved with pain, and they would come around and sort of critique the amount of pain medication we were prescribing. And they, you know, are sort of following the data that's there at the time. You know, a lot of this data and how it was, how this data came about has sort of been in the news a good bit lately. Um, but it was very common for them to tell us that we were not prescribing enough pain medication. Um, and, you know, they would sort of push you to prescribe more. And you'd, some of us were a little bit more uh, stubborn than others and, you know, kind of holding our ground and saying, well, you know, that's what I feel comfortable prescribing. We're not going to do more. And then I have a memory at some point uh, after residency when they started telling us that we were prescribing too much pain medication. Uh, all the while, you know, when I was prescribing too little and when I was prescribing too much, I was always prescribing the same. Sure. And... I think that uh, now they're starting to come back the other direction and realize that uh, maybe that it was a little bit of an overreaction uh, the way they handled, um, you know, they they cast a little too wide of a net in trying to rein in uh, some of the opioid usage and 
it was sort of affecting some of the surgical patients and that sort of thing. Sure, because it's needed for a lot of your surgeries. I mean, I'm sure I've undergone a couple of surgeries and been prescribed them. I'm sure most of us have. It's it's needed for real pain um, for a lot of surgical procedures. But then I, I, you have the issue of addiction or abuse and then, and then chronic pain, which is a totally separate topic. But I think for you and for surgery, it, you know, it is needed for some. And if, if you could just talk on that, on, on you know, your experiences with that. Well, I, I will say that, you know, one thing that has come out of all of this is that there is a lot of healthy conversation around the usage of pain medication. And it's not something that's just done lightly and taken for granted. And so, you know, when in surgery, uh, we don't expect patients to have chronic pain. It's very rare for us to have a patient who postoperatively has chronic pain. And when they get into, if they get into an area where they're having chronic pain, that's not something that's really best managed uh, by a general surgeon. And so uh, that's a patient that you would refer out uh, to a pain clinic um, or someone who does if he can pain find medicine. one if he can find one now but you know that's that's something that's very <laughs> unusual for us for us usually the pain is a conversation with the patient uh, right. for after surgery and you know to be honest with you what I'll tell the patient is that you know I don't want you to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, I don't want this experience to be miserable for you but do know that your pain is to a certain extent you know it's temporary and it's kind of secondary to the primary goal, which is to have your problem fixed definitively, you know, without other complications and the pain we can manage in the short, you know, seven to 10 days that that's an issue. If you had to, let me, let me, I'm going to pivot for one second. So if you had to, I'm sure you get this, uh, family comes up to you, maybe one of your friends and they said, you know, my, my son or my daughter wants to be a surgeon. Can they come talk to you? You know, just, I mean, we get it too sometimes as lawyers sometimes, and they ask if we want to go to law school. I say, no, don't go. But, uh, but I, I wanted to ask you from a, from a surgeon, when you get people that ask you, my, my, my son, my daughter wants to go to med school, and they really want to do this, and they want to come talk to you, you know, what do you, what do you think about that in today's climate, in today's pr- provider, cli- you know, culture, client, um, uh, payer, the, all the regulations, all the stuff you deal with every day, the schooling, the work? What would you tell someone? in terms of if they wanted to be a physician, how would you respond to that? When the when you know, I mean, you don't want to crush a kid's dreams and all, and, and, and you might want to go to that, but I'm curious, how do you respond today? If someone says, hey, I want to be a doctor, what, what do you tell them? So. Did uh, I, throw a, I throw a curveball at you, huh? No, That's, no, 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 no. I think that, no, it's, it's a good question because it's true. There's a, a lot going on today. You know, uh, cost of education going up, reimbursements going down. Right. There's a regulatory climate that, uh, you know, kind of has uh, different regulatory sure. agencies sort of at even for je- for surgeons, you know, starting to creep into the way we, you know, the way you document an operative case, uh, for example. And some of that, there's there's good reasons to do it. You know, some of it is, you know, it's some of its artificial problems in our mind. You know, for us, it's more work. Y- yes hoops to jump through, things like that. But, uh, you know, if you were to get me on that side, I could, you know, probably spend the rest of the podcast talking about that kind of thing. (laughs) But there's really not something else that I would rather do, you know. And uh, I think that 
it's it's not for me, um, you know. Yeah. To to tell that person, you know, and and sort of, I, I think it, it's it's unfortunate. I think that some physicians will focus on that negative side. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, uh, what we do is fun. Um, it's well, you, you clearly know, enjoy it. You love it. Sometimes it's tough. Right. You know, I'd love for us to be able to have this podcast in the operating room so you could see what I do. You know, we we love to show people what we do. Um, I think that's amazing, you know. I really do. And, I, and then you clearly love what you do. I mean, you, you know, I have students all the time that will, uh, people that will get in touch with me. Yeah. Um, either they're a family friend, uh, you know, or something like that. And they'll get in touch with me and ask to shadow and you know, depending upon their age and what they're working on, sometimes they're allowed into the operating room. That's and, nice. You know, it's, I think it gives them a, a good idea of what's going on. And, you know, our job, I think, is to have frank conversations with them. And, you know, sometimes that includes some of the things that are, you know, less fun about what we do. But th- those are sort of, you know, we don't like talking about numbers and we don't talking about the, we don't like talking about the law and things like that, but they're sort of a necessary part of making those things work. So if you were telling someone that, you would say, look, if you really love it, right, if you love science, if you love the human body, the anatomy, if you like that, then then by all means, go. Yes, absolutely. Um, regardless of the regardless of all the other cloud, right, you know, there's a there's a bright spot there somewhere. So I will tell you that when we are in the operating room, and I think a lot of surgeons feel this way. Uh-huh. Um, is there wait wait let me ask you if there's like is there TVs in the operating room and they're watching y'all watching movies I mean you hear all these crazy things I mean they 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 got you know music like Van Halen playing in the background while everyone's cutting and dancing I mean is it is it really like that or is it is so that a little bit overplayed so much, but we certainly there's certainly music in the operating room. Um, I mean, are you playing like Metallica, like Enter Sandman? Are you like <laughs> so? I, I or is it more classical, calm music? So. I, for me, it's dealer's choice. So whoever's operating the, you know, music device. You have a DJ. I'm, I'm kidding. I think you have a DJ. So yeah, they have a circulating nurse in the room who's usually uh, in charge of the music. But I can see how that would help. I mean, if you're in there for hours, it would be nice to have something to kind of break that, uh, or you know, and allow for mental focus. So I think that if it's a case uh, where everybody knows what they're doing, it is an elective case. Um, it's, it's not something that's distracting in that setting. Sure. Um, but, you know, you can imagine that in trauma, maybe we did it a little less. Um, right. You know, or if, if there's a difficult portion of the case, sometimes there's a part of the case where, you know, music gets turned down or off. And, right. You know, you kind of make sure everybody's paying attention. And sure, sure. And I like the fact that you, you like to bring in people and show them around and, 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 and really give them a chance to see what it's like. You know, giving again, given you know if it's appropriate uh, to see what it's like being a surgeon. I mean, that's, I mean, what a tremendous opportunity. I think that most surgeons, at the end of the day, despite you know any complaints anyone might have, they will tell you that when they're in the operating room, yeah, even if the case is not a fun one, uh, maybe uh, it's it's a tough case, or maybe there's you know a patient who you just know going in is not going to have a good outcome, but surgery is sort of your your best. least bad option right uh, regardless I think that when people are when they're in the operating room I don't think they're thinking about much else and there's you know a certain piece sure. about that that's really good so we have a rule in the show that every physician that comes on we have to ask them their COVID story and how 
how they did professionally, how things changed for the better or the worse. So if you could just tell us a little bit of how, you know, your practice changed, anything you went through that you'd like to share and, um, you know, just anything you'd like to talk on that. Cause I think, you know, I'm tired of talking about it, you know, particularly, but I think some people still like to hear different areas, how practices changed and, and things you had to go through and, you know, that kind of thing. I, I kind of agree that it's an interesting question. Uh, in as much as it sort of put its hands, you know, it, it affected everyone. It touched everything. It touched every specialty and every specialty in a different way. And it's interesting to see how people sort of addressed the same problem from their vantage point. Um, for us, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting. There was a period where they shut down elective surgeries. Um, you know, there was some conversations about how to manage these patients um, especially in that first wave in March of 2020, you know, we went from no COVID cases to, you know, this huge jump the day that the tests became available. Um, and there was this, it seemed like an endless line of patients coming in. And for us, everybody was asking for dialysis access because right. everybody's kidneys were failing and everybody. And the other one that was a common question was uh, tracheostomies. Uh, for patients who couldn't get off the ventilator but had been stabilized and they had made it through that acute inflammatory phase. You know, and there was all kinds of conversations about when's the right time to do it. Um, and, you know, sometimes operating on people that had COVID in a setting, you know, that you – it sort of limits your ability um, to really protect everyone in the room. Uh, that must so, have been really hard. I mean, that, that – I mean, going from universal precautions, right, on, a, on like a surgery like you would do now or, or before COVID, right, to having to do surgery with COVID of a COVID-positive patient, I mean, that, I mean, that must have been tenfold. You know, it, it, it was interesting. Um, I think that... Yeah, the spacesuit on? Did you have the helmet and all that? There was a period where we, we had done that for some of the tracheostomies that were bedside tracheostomies. Oh, wow. Um, we had done that, you know, the facility had to, you know, they converted one of the cardiology floors into a second ICU um, because they didn't have enough ICU beds. Um, at the time, uh, I had a wife at home who was pregnant. and That's scary. You know, and, and that was, those were actually, you know, the patients that were hit pretty hard with it uh, was, you know, COVID, especially in that first wave, was ruthless. I, I know from from my, from from our standpoint because you know my wife's a physician too. She we had a total like infection protocol at our house where we were literally when you came in you, you totally undressed in the garage, put it in bags, immediately go to the shower and throw them in the wash in hot water only. I mean we did that for like months. We definitely had a version of that. Yes. I mean and, and my wife would come home and you know and I would see her. I said, did you get the clothes in the bag? And then you know did the washer you get. Did you shower yet? And, you know, I, felt, I, was, I was a little, you know, it was a little high. Look, I'm glad Rory's laughing. It was, I was high. It was a little high drama in our house. I mean, I can't even imagine in surgery, it must have been 10 times worse. I mean, well, and, you know, one of the things is, you know, in the beginning, uh, some of the ways to approach COVID beat were pretty clear. They started becoming less clear as COVID started to drag on. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you had fewer sicker, sick patients in the hospital. 
Um, you know, and at what point did you resume normal life? You know, that, that was not as obvious a transition on when to resume normal operations and things like that. And so, you know, uh, it was a period where, you know, the CMOs of the hospitals really earned their keep because they had a lot of tough decisions to make. Um, I think that in our world, there were definitely some uh, some bad outcomes that I can think of that were sort of tied to that. Um, I think that you know, there were patients who maybe had abdominal pain but wouldn't come to an ER because they were scared that the ER was just full of COVID patients, which was often true. Right. Um, and so, you know, maybe they ended up coming a few days after that with a perforated appendicitis. And so they were much sicker than they would have been previously. Oh, no. Um, you know, so th there was definitely – it definitely affected um, – patients, you know, in other ways. Is there anything that you or your hospital has put into place or kept in place, I guess, that um, when, went into place for COVID that you've kept or that you like as far as, you know, procedures? Are you still asking patients to wear masks? You know, what does that look like? Have you Has it changed your practice, I guess, is a better way to put it? I can't think of anything other than I think that it's been sort of a, a mass education event, you know, and everybody in the hospital, you know, that maybe didn't know how to wear an N95 mask knows how to wear it now. Um, but I can't think of a lot that's that stayed with us as a result. And I'm sure that, you know, when I walk out of here, I'll think of something. But Aha. Well, let me ask you this. I, you know, so I watched the Jetsons. Yeah, I admit it when I was a kid. Right. And I heard you talked about a few years ago where da Vinci started coming in. So I'm, I'm going to ask you this as a general surgeon, you're talking to other surgeons all over the place. Where do you see surgery in five years from now, 10 years from now? Is it all robotics? Is there new robots? Is there new techniques? Is there, in other words, am I going to be like Captain Kirk on Star Trek and I'm going to go see Bones and he's going to scan me with some little tricorder and give me a pill and I'm going to solely be fine? I mean, I mean, that's not realistic. But I'm asking you, do you see anything in the future for surgery or, you know, what's it, what's it going to be like in five years with advanced things? And are you seeing anything that like that now? So... Talking about general surgeons specifically, I would say that um, I think that there will be improvements on the current robotics platforms. Um, so instruments that can get in through tighter spaces. You know, currently um, the robot system we use, uh, we generally use three or four eight millimeter ports. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have eight millimeter incision sites that you access the abdomen through. Uh, I can. I'm fairly certain that they have in the works um, a, you know, single site robot, which will allow you to get all those instruments through the same port. But one a, port. Yes. And through a smaller port. That's amazing. And I mean, it's possible that I've missed something here and that's already out, but I, I don't think it is. Um, and I, I think that that might change a little bit of what we do as they improve that. Um, I think that in a bro more broadly speaking, really the sky's the limit. They're really good. There's really a lot of things, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the first ro use of robotic instruments was maybe like in the 80s 
you know, I want to say that they used a robot to assist with a brain biopsy. Oh, wow. Um, it might have been into the 90s, but don't quote me on that. You know, and, and they find uses for it. A lot of times they'll have the technology and, and they'll kind of know that it can be used somewhere. You know, and when I was a resident and they had the robot, I was a little bit skeptical of it uh, because I don't think the technology was really there for it. And I think that they were trying to apply it maybe to the wrong surgeries. Um, and eventually through that collaboration that we sort of touched on earlier between industry and the rep and the and the physicians, you, they sort of find a better way between the two of them on how to apply that technology. And there's really a lot of things out there. You know, now they're doing the robotic joints. I know they do a lot of those over yeah. at Turo. I, I, and I saw one. I, I saw one where they fed the, 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 the this cable. Like, I don't know if it was from the cath lab or not, but it was some way that didn't, they don't do stints. In other words, this little device would be fed up through your leg and it would go up to where your heart was and, and it would take the, it had like a little scooper. So as you're, it's like a little shovel and as it would move forward, it would scoop up the plaque and it would suck it down the wire. And I'm like, and there was no stent. And I'm like, man, that looks, I don't know if it was real or not. I don't know if I saw it, on, you know, one of these, you know, device ads and I'm like, that's really cool. But and that's just one thing. And I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be hundreds of things these people are doing. Uh, and I can't even imagine what it's going to look like five years from now, ten years from now. No, I think that – and this is why I think that that collaboration is important because uh, there's a lot of technology out there. And there's really no other way to deploy it that I can mm -hmm. fathom, you know, that doesn't involve reps from the company uh, that are around to make sure that questions are answered and um, – you know, you really don't want your surgeon um, or, you know, whatever the specialty may be sort of trying to figure out a hardware, um, you know, while they're in the operating room. Well, I hope, you know, you're going to be around for quite some time. I mean, I, you're going to get – hopefully in 10 years I might need surgery. I'm going to call you up and you're going to have some device you could, you know, cure everything and with, with like knowing like a, a little incision. Maybe it's two millimeter. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, Rory, what, what, I mean, I think, I think I got a really good picture. This is really, you know, you do a lot of tough work, Aries. I mean, you got, you got a lot of stress, but you seem to love it. I mean, like, I mean, you're, you're on top of things. You're, I mean, every time I see you, you're always happy. Like you're always, he's always smiling. He's always happy. And I'm like, man, I wish I, I want to be like, I want to have, I want to. You know, I don't know how to get rid of stress. Just go back to go to med school. I yeah, guess. sure. I'm gonna go to med school, right, and go for a five year general <laughs> surgery residency. You know, gee, wow. I'll be seventy when I get out, right? <laughs> well, what I want to tell you, th thank you. I mean, it, let me ask you this: We never ask address this. Do you have any questions for the healthcare? We we can give you know like legal advice, but uh, you know, is on the other side when you, when you listen to the healthcare side, when you listen to us. You know, are there any things that, that you as a surgeon or you as a physician walk out and say, you know, sometimes I wish I would have asked the lawyers this. Is there anything that comes to mind, you know, aside from our fees? Because we know you we know y'all love to pay legal fees. I oh, think, well. um, I, so I don't have any specific questions at the moment, but I will say that uh, I do listen to your podcast, and I, th I think that it it's really um, – I think it's really an asset for physicians to really understand the legal framework that they're working in. Um, I think that for, for physicians, from our perspective, um, we understand the medical framework very well. Um, but 
the it's worthwhile understanding the legal framework because if you're not involved in it, uh, like Dr. Quo, who was you know two podcasts ago, yes. Um, if if you're not involved in it, there are other people out there that are creating that legal framework for you, and that legal framework will affect the medical framework. It will affect it'll affect what you'll be able to do and what you'll be able to accomplish. And so, this really is an asset. Uh, this really is an asset to us. And, you know, I think that physicians really need to get more comfortable with their attorney friends. Um, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of them see us as like, like what is it, the, the enemy or just sort of a, how would you describe it? Or I don't know the yeah. enemy, but it would be like a, like a necessary evil. I yeah, I don't think it's the enemy. I think that what I hear more of is, you know, that, that we're slowing things down for doctors. That, And I want to say we, I mean like, attorneys or legislators or, or the government, you know, as a broad phrase, you know, we hear a lot that, that you're slowing down medicine, you're making uh, all these rules and regulations on how we have to document and we can't do this, but we can do that. And you're going to pay us less, but you want us to see more patients. And that's the feedback that I think I hear a lot is why is medicine so regulated? Why can't I send a patient to a surgery center that I own without telling them that I own it? Why you know, why can't I pay this person, you know, for, for referring somebody to me? That's what I hear a lot is explaining to them why we have these regulations, um, because it's the most heavily regulated it industry, is. maybe, maybe above finance, maybe a bunch above the financial sector. If not, it, it's one or two. So I think that's what I hear the most. And it's just, you know, kind of educating them. Well, you know, Here's where these came into place, and here was the thought back then when like Stark, we're here to help. Yeah, when when Stark became a thing, there were issues. You know, now it's totally evolved into something that that Peter Stark did not want this to be, but it is. So, I think it's just talking about you know where. Well, I think I think as to, to Dr. Christakis's point, reimbursements are going down, tuitions going up. You know, I mean, physicians are looking for ancillary revenue sources that that can help maintain or sure. grow just their, their current standard of revenue. And, and there's a lot of regulatory oversight with respect to how that is structured properly to, to be able to do that. Um, and, uh, and I know that there's a lot of confusion out there. Sometimes, you know, we, we hear, you know, well, the other guy's doing it, so why can't we do it, right? How many times right. have you heard that? Right. You know, so. So, you know, one thing I'll say about that is that I think uh, physician burnout is a big topic, uh, and you'll, I mean, if you'll, that's, that's you'll, a big deal. you could, you know, if you did a Google search, you'd find a couple dozen newspaper articles uh, where they're talking about that, and, you know, in my experience, the burnout is not because of the medicine. Uh, it's because of everything else. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot of physicians who are just burnt out just for the, you know, treating patients and doing that. I, I think that what burns them out is everything else that goes along with it. And so I think that when physicians uh, sort of put that section out of mind, you know, and they put the legal framework out of mind, they're sort of, uh, they end up being bystanders and they don't get to, you know, uh, they don't get to affect the environment that they operate in, you know, so they really kind of need to listen. Well, we hope they do. I mean, don't you worry? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, Dr. Christakis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yes, we really appreciate you. that. Uh, it's been it's been fun. I mean, you know, I thought I, I, I knew you before, 
but it's nice to be able to delve in and really see what goes on in your world. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know how you do it, frankly. I mean, it's tough, you know, being a surgeon, the pressure, but, uh, you, you carry it like a sword. I mean, you, you're doing great. I mean, calm, cool, and collective. I mean, I, if I ever need surgery, I definitely want to come to see you. Right. I, I would feel so much better when he walked out the door. I'm like, man, I'm in good hands, you know? So uh, I, I will just say that I think that this is something that's, you know, I think that this is something typical of physicians out there. Physicians are, you know, there's a lot of physicians out there that are just comfortable with what they do. Um, and well, so it's common. But You're you definitely know, one of them. You're definitely one of those. Thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate that. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us here at Health Law Talk. We really appreciate uh, Dr. Christakis, and it was very, very nice. And we're going to get this out, and everybody can listen to it really soon. We look forward to the next episode of Health Law Talk. Everybody have a great weekend. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel, make sure to give us that five-star rating, and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman-Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship. Reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.